It's 1920. Wimbledon. The finals for the men's doubles. In the finals are two Americans. It's a Harvard and Yale combination, which was a rarity. Chuck Garland and Dick Williams. They had just beaten Bill Tenden and Bill Johnston, aka Big Bill and Little Bill, who had been dominating. It was an amazing upset. But now Williams and Garland had to beat Britain's Algie Kingscott and Ireland's Cecil Park. Many say Williams was just focused, quiet, even calling him the brains of the operation. He was controlled. And so the game went on for six, six four, seven five, six two. His serves were always returned, but he had one hell of a backhand. Williams was nimble and he played well with Garland. And to see him with his graceful stride, one might never know that just years before, he had woken up on the Carpathia with legs blackened from frostbite, the ship surgeon telling him that it was necessary to amputate his legs. When Williams refused, he was an athlete after all, the doctor told him to not expect to be able to walk again. He had miraculously survived the sinking of the Titanic. And despite his great loss and pain, R. Norris Williams, or Dick Williams, somehow clawed his way back, not only into the world of competitive tennis, but also with his monumental recovery. His story, 100%, proves that he was one of God's favorites. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. We just finished up Titanic Month on TikTok, so let's do a Titanic wrap-up with the story of R. Norris Williams. The story of Richard Norris Williams' survival from the Titanic is phenomenal in and of itself, but it's his resilience after the fact that got my attention. I covered this story for the first time last year on my TikTok channel during our Titanic month, which, if you don't know, is just me on my TikTok account for the entire month of April doing nothing but Titanic content. But William's story is one that had everyone in the comments of that video asking, why isn't this a movie? Why has Hollywood not done this yet, at least on a large scale? This has the potential to be Oscar gold because it has everything, adversity, catastrophe, triumph, and tragedy. So the best I can figure is if Hollywood won't do it, we'll just do it here on God's Favorites. Richard Norris Williams II, sometimes styled as R. Norris Williams or Dick Williams, was born on January 29, 1891 in Geneva, Switzerland. Don't let the Swiss pedigree fool you. He was very American. How American is he? Well, 
Our Norris Williams, survivor of the Titanic and Wimbledon champion, is a direct descendant of Benjamin Franklin. Dick's family was from Philadelphia, of course, hence the Benjamin Franklin connection, and he was born to Charles Dwayne Williams and Lydia Biddle White. Dick Williams had an incredibly privileged upbringing attending boarding school in Switzerland. He spoke French, German, and displayed incredible athletic ability as a tennis player. Prior to his plans of attending Harvard to play tennis, he was already playing in matches across Europe. But it was purely coincidence that Dick Williams ended up on the Titanic at all. He was never supposed to be on that ship at all. But a bout of measles caused him to cancel an earlier voyage, and his father rebooked their tickets for the RMS Titanic in first class. Dick and his father boarded in Cherbourg, France on the second day of the voyage. And for the most part, as it was for all the other voyagers, it was a very uneventful journey until it wasn't. Dick and his father were on sea deck in a stateroom the night of the collision. When it became evident that something was amiss, Charles and Dick left their stateroom to go investigate. If you have seen the 1997 film Titanic by James Cameron, there's a scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet that plays out, and that particular scene was inspired by Dick Williams. In that scene, you see Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet burst through a wall with an axe, trying to escape steerage as the doors have been locked below. It's worth noting that that was never intentional lockage of steerage passengers. It just so happened that it trapped many people downstairs. As the pair walk down a hallway, a steward chases them, telling them they're going to have to pay for any and all damages, to which point they tell him, not so politely, to shut up. This is actually a variation on a situation with Dick Williams, a steward, and some passengers that were trying to get out of steerage. Initially, the steward was trying to knock down a door because there were some passengers from steerage trapped below deck. Dick leaves his father for a moment and puts his entire body weight into breaking down the door. It coincidentally knocks out part of the wall along with it, at which point the steward tells Dick Williams that he just destroyed White Star Line property, And Dick Williams' response was, okay. The steward told him he would have to pay for that, and Dick was like, well, bill me, I guess. Though I have never been able to confirm that any of those steerage passengers lived, there are some reports that one of the passengers that Dick Williams freed did survive the sinking. But like many things in the aftermath, it's subject to confusion and hearsay. On this podcast, we have talked many times about how the lifeboats were being underfilled, and how there was a miscommunication between 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller and the captain, where he believed that he had been told women and children only, as opposed to Smith's order women and children first. I see a lot of people throw him under the bus for that, and well, that's just the gift of hindsight for most people. But what you have to understand is that when these orders were going out, there was the screaming of steam from boilers going into the air, and it was impossible to hear, and the communication was not great. That's why so many people didn't know the ship was sinking until it was far too late. But Dick and his father just waited for some sort of news, some sort of indication that it was their turn to board a lifeboat. In the wait, the two decided to wander up to one of the bars on A deck, and they just hung around and asked if it was possible to get a drink. They asked the steward if he could open up the bar, but he told him it was against regulations, and he apologized. At this point... Dick's father, Charles, hands him an empty flask. He tells his son to hold on to it for him. 
Dick told author Walter Lord that this must have been roughly around midnight. As the wait went on, some of the gentlemen went into one of the gymnasiums. At the time, Titanic's gymnasium had state-of-the-art exercise equipment. It provided a shelter from the brutally cold temperatures of the North Atlantic. Better to stay inside the gymnasium than to wait on the deck for lifeboats. In fact, Dick Williams parked himself onto a stationary bike and pedaled to stay warm. There was lots of chattering going on. Questions about what the life vests were made of. Madeline Astor, who was pregnant at the time, was waiting and wondered what was in the life vest. Her husband, John Jacob Astor IV, took out a knife and cut it open to show her what was inside so she could see what would help her float. They probably thought they wouldn't need it. Madeline did eventually get put into a lifeboat. The longer they waited, the more they started to realize that there was potentially a chance that none of them would make it off the ship alive. Some accepted this fate, and Dick recalled his father looking at him and asking him, Well, do you want to go down with the ship, or do you want to try to fight for it? Williams was 21 at the time, young and strong and athletic. So he told his father he wanted to fight for it. They moved toward the front of the ship on the starboard side, where First Officer William Murdoch was frantically working alongside Sixth Officer James Moody and Chief Officer Henry Wilde to launch Collapsible A, one of the emergency lifeboats that were on top of the officers' quarters. According to many sources, the crowds on the starboard side near Collapsible A were starting to get a little hectic. Sixth Officer James Moody suggested to Murdoch that perhaps they should just let the boat float away, but Murdoch, likely thinking about crowd control, told him that was a bad idea. What will follow in the next few minutes is a violent end for many of the passengers and crew members of the ship. The ship had tilted port first due to the massive amounts of coal that had been moved because of a coal fire on starboard. That was what launched Charles Lightoller into the water first. If you listen to my series on Charles Lightoller, you'll know that at this moment, in that part of the story, he's actually trapped underneath the funnel on the grating below, pinned by water. An explosion is going to push him up to the surface quite quickly. At this same time, Dick Williams and his father had both been plunged into the water, separated and freezing. In the book On a Sea of Glass, Williams recounts this, saying he couldn't have been more than 12 to 15 feet from his father. But what none of those people knew was that the forward funnel was about to fall. While Dick was swimming in the water, he came face to face with one of the dogs that had been freed from a kennel. It was a bulldog, likely belonging to first-class passenger Robert Daniels. Richard went to help the dog, but then saw his father coming toward him. His father had spotted his son and was coming for him. But then there was a terrible groan of metal. And Richard looked up to see the four-funnel fall and was making eye contact with his father when it crushed him. He was in shock. 
not knowing what to think. He described it as being transfixed. Curiously enough, not because it had killed my father, for whom I had a far more than normal feeling of love and attachment. But there, I was transfixed, wondering at the enormous size of that funnel still belching smoke. Where is the survivors of collapse will be with Charles Lightoller had that second officer to organize them? All the officers who had been around Collapsible A were dead. Wild, Murdoch, Moody. They were all gone. Collapsible A was a canvas-lined Inglehart lifeboat, and if you imagine a stackable laundry hamper that has been pressed down, you can envision what happened to Collapsible A and the people that were on it initially. Some people had managed to climb in, about 30, maybe less. But the boat had not been unstacked all the way and as such popped up throwing people over the side into the freezing cold water. But somehow in the dark, Dick Williams manages to swim over and get inside of the lifeboat. Because of its state, it was full of cold water, 28 degrees Fahrenheit, freezing. Another passenger, Rhoda Abbott, had also managed to get in. She had been swimming with her son and got pulled under the ship in a whirlpool, she said but was blown up to the surface by an explosion. Her son, nowhere to be found. Norris said he had not been underwater very long. He had had on a huge coat, but it had been made out of fur, so he tossed it aside because it was weighing him down. He also tossed off his shoes. He climbed up in collapsible A after seeing it floating. When he first got in, he noted the water was up to his waist. Many people were holding on, and some just fell out of it. He later noted that his coat was found clinging to the side of the boat, so he eventually did get it back. When 5th Officer Harold Lowe came upon them, he noted that 11 of them were still alive. Others were gone, freezing to death. Harold Lowe transferred Dick Williams into boat 14, and from there he was taken to the Carpathia. His legs were blackened from frostbite, and it was very painful, he remembered. He noted that the ship surgeon on board the Carpathia was almost cheerful, far too eager to amputate his legs. He had been in and out of consciousness, but he very distinctly remembered looking at the doctor and saying, no, I need those. The surgeon basically told Dick that he would never be able to use his legs again to walk or play tennis. I'm not sure if he was operating out of sheer will or strength or even spite, but Williams was immediately up and trying to walk around. He required assistance to do it, but he knew he had to force circulation back into his legs. This is just the beginning of a painful recovery process. Dick was already processing the trauma of losing his father. He was dealing with a hefty dose of survivor's guilt. Thinking of the bodies of the dead that surrounded him in the water, including that of his father's, 
and the people who were with him in the boat who couldn't hold on any longer. Williams walked the deck of the Carpathia every two hours, trying to force blood to flow into his legs. He was doing this without the guidance of a physician. He was just forcing himself to do something, to focus on something other than his sadness, his trauma. And he would do this and continue to work on walking for 12 long weeks until he was back on the tennis court. He was at the Longwood Challenge Bowl. He made it to the fourth round when he was suddenly confronted with this shadow, this painful memory. You see, William's opponent in that fourth round was Carl Bear. And Carl Bear, just like Dick Williams, had survived the sinking of the Titanic. The circumstances that had led Bear to being on the Titanic were a little bit different than Williams. There's a great New York Times article about this, this matchup. Two young men beat the odds and survived the Titanic. And what do you know? Months later, the pair are facing off on a tennis court. While measles had been the reason that Williams had to delay his trip, it turned out that Bear had switched his ticket when he found out that a romantic interest, a 19-year-old woman named Helen, was going to be on the maiden voyage. Unlike most male passengers, Bear had actually been able to get into a lifeboat with Helen, and they both survived and married later on. Bear would tell other family members that they needed someone to row the boat, and he helped out. It took five sets. 06, 79, 62, 6-1, Bear, at the age of 27, would beat Dick Williams. But it wouldn't be the last time the two would meet. And there was no animosity between the two. In fact, Dick would recall that Bear was particularly nice to him on the Carpathia. Bear would also suffer from survivor's guilt, especially in regards to being one of the men who was rescued. To quash some of the shame he felt, he did testify on behalf of a group of steerage passengers who were filing a class action suit against the White Star Line. In fact, he testified against White Star Line Chairman J. Bruce Ismay. At the end of all this, the plaintiffs would win, for loss of life and possessions. The two would meet up again in 1914 at the United States Championships. Because of his youth and tenacity, Dick was pretty much back to his prime form. And during the straight sets, Williams would defeat Bear. He would beat Maurice McLaughlin in the finals of that year winning, and Bill Johnston in the 1916 finals. There is a brief pause in his tennis career here. He would enlist in the U.S. Army ahead of World War I. Given the tenacity I have described thus far, it should be no surprise to anyone that Williams was a hero during the war. He was an artillery officer who fought in the Second Battle of the Marne, not just fought, excelled. He was awarded France's Croix de Guerre and Chevalier de Légion d'Honneur 
two of the most prestigious medals in France. You can read some of his letters. William's letters are kept at the University of Pennsylvania. They document his wartime experience, and it's noted by the university that William's was always aware of the history he was involved in. He seemed to end up in a lot of major historical events by no fault of his own, but when he was in World War I, he would remember to collect things, keep them. Things like aerial reconnaissance photographs and outdated instructions. He kept his maps, his letters, and he donated them at the end of his life to that collection. The historians over the collection even note that because his original diaries were in terrible condition, Williams turned around and transcribed every entry from April 1917 to May 1919, just for clarity. He worked in the banking profession, but continued his career as a professional tennis player. And that's when he made it to Wimbledon. The doubles title would be the only Wimbledon title he would ever win. He would try again four years later with his friend Waddy Washburn, but they didn't win. But in that 1920 match, all the strength that Dick had channeled to survive the sinking of the Titanic and the war and to push himself through grueling physical therapy, it all came to the surface as he was focused on sending the ball down the center line. The Associated Press wrote, his opponents served upon his backhand until they found out he always made brilliant returns down the center line. Then they attacked his forehand, only to find out the pace of his return often put the ball away. William's play was genuinely brilliant. His family noted that he never really talked too much about the tragedy, but sort of wrote details about everything so they would have it ready to have an account of his history. His tenacity even showed in the Olympics in 1924. At the age of 33, he became a gold medalist in mixed doubles with Hazel Hoshkiss Whiteman. And in true Dick Williams fashion, he played with a sprained ankle. In the later years of his life, things quieted down a little bit. He continued to play tennis. He became an investment banker and was president, naturally, of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. It seems fitting that a man who witnessed so many historical events firsthand definitely would know how to curate those things. Williams died in 1968 at the age of 77. Some suggested that some of his vascular issues that he would suffer from in his older years would stem back to his time in freezing water in the North Atlantic. His family says he never dwelled on the past. He was definitely aware of the significance of the events he had been involved with, but no matter the trauma or pain those things brought with them, He tried to make light of it. His daughter telling historians at Wimbledon that once he even carved their Christmas roast on his Wimbledon winning platter. God's Favorites is a history podcast where we talk about those who were God's favorites. And in this case, this guy's definitely one of those. Or those who thought they were. We have several sources for today, the first being On a Sea of Glass. The Life and Loss of the RMS Titanic by Bill Wormstead, J. Kent Layton, and Tad Fitch. A Night to Remember by Walter Lord. The Night Lives On, also by Walter Lord. The Wimbledon Archives. The Richard Norris William Archives at the University of Pennsylvania. A Matchup of Unsinkable Spirits by Harvey Ariton for the New York Times. 
and the forgotten faces of Titanic from the Mariner's Museum website. Please support the authors we use for sources. Thank you to everybody who donates to our Patreon page, and that goes towards costs such as getting behind paywalls, buying books, music licensing costs, and streaming services. If you missed Titanic Month, those videos are still up over on TikTok. Go check them out. You can also check out the playlist from last year's Titanic Month. I'm over there at Melissa Fairlady. And as always, see you next time, friends. <laughs>